0: For Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID 19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, people across the country continue to take to the streets to protest police brutality and the deaths of George Floyd and countless others. But the coronavirus pandemic hasn't stopped.
1: There's this epidemic or pandemic of racism that we must squash just as effectively as we're trying to squash the COVID pandemic.
0: Dr. Howard Markell, physician, medical educator, and historian of medicine at the University of Michigan, joins me to talk about how the protests and the tactics used to stop them could spread COVID-19 and what lessons we can learn from mass gatherings during past pandemics. That's next. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbankcom freechecking free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Amerisbank, Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org.
0: There's growing concern that days of protests across the country and the tactics used to disperse them could lead to an increased spread of the coronavirus. Historians have linked mass gatherings during past pandemics, specifically large parades during the 1918 influenza pandemic, to an increase in viral transmission. Dr. Howard Markell is one such historian. He's also a physician and a medical educator at the University of Michigan, and he joins me now for more. Dr. Markell, thanks for talking with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we are talking today about the protests that have been happening around the country over the last week or so. Of course, this pandemic is still happening. Just to start, based on what we do know about the coronavirus, talk to me about some of the the potential risks of people gathering in
1: these large numbers. Let me preface it by saying I understand fully the American public's response to the horrific murders in the last few days and the need to protest or object to the way their government is working. In fact, that is one of our wonderful, <laughs> that it's the First Amendment right of the United States. So I understand that. But as a physician, it is a risky business in the midst of a pandemic, particularly one that is easily spread by respiratory droplets, to be in close proximity with other people who are screaming, chanting. In many circumstances, police corral the protesters. You're very close with other people, even though you're outside. Not everyone is wearing a mask. You don't know who is sick or not, and you certainly don't know who's an asymptomatic carrier. And then when you add all of that, it is a risk, a medical risk. And so that's what I worry about.
0: Certainly, Understanding this is a conversation that's happening in acknowledgement that protest is a right. And especially when we look at the events of the last few weeks, it's it's hard to imagine people not taking to the streets to respond. Are there things that maybe people who feel motivated to go out and participate
1: could maybe do to protect themselves? Well, certainly uh, face masks, lots of hand washing because you don't want to touch other people's hands. And if it could be done with social distancing, which I doubt, where each protester is six feet away from the other, that would be the ideal condition. But it's it's not practical <laughs> in terms of how protests work. But it is a risk. Uh, and, you know, they would take my stethoscope away if I didn't say that <laughs> to potential patients. And what we particularly uh, worry about are those people who are in the high risk groups. Who may be joining the protest. So people who are over 60, people with hypertension, diabetes, obese people, cardiovascular problems. We don't know the precise extra risk, but we know that those demographics have done far po- more poorly, far worse than those without them.
0: I also think it's important here to highlight that protesters are not the only actors in these situations. We think about law enforcement here in Georgia. We've had the National Guard deployed. And we've seen here in Georgia and across the country the extensive use of certain tactics. You mentioned a few of them corralling people. Also, the extensive use of of tear gas, this, this agent that makes people sneeze and and cough. Talk to me a little bit about what you've been seeing this last week that concerns you maybe from the enforcement side of things.
1: Well, tear gas contains what are medically called noxious agents, but we might as well call them obnoxious agents. They can, uh, chemicals, uh, cayenne pepper, all sorts of things that when you're exposed to it, your eyes tear up immediately And the mucus and saliva that comes out of your nose and mouth is almost like a faucet. It's like an artificial cold, uh, but far worse. And so you can imagine that once you've been pepper sprayed and you are, your body is reacting in that way, and you're still screaming or chanting, coughing and sneezing in close proximity to others. If you have COVID-19, you could spread it to others and... Conversely, your neighbors in the protest, if they've been pepper-gassed and they have the virus, they could spread it as well. So it it's almost an amplifier, if you will, of the spread of uh, COVID-19. And I fully expect to see some spikes uh, anywhere from you know 10 to 14 days after the protest began uh, among those people who went. But you're right, there's a lot of actors. There's, there's National Guard, there's police forces, there's public uh, people, there's news people, journalists around. These are big crowds. Uh, and even though they're justified crowds, this is a particular weird moment in our national history where we're prescribing social distancing, which is, runs completely counter to the concept of civil protests uh, under one's First Amendment rights.
0: And I want to talk a little bit about history. You've studied extensively the flu pandemic of 1918. And my understanding is historians like yourself have actually linked spikes in cases in certain cities to certain large gatherings like we're seeing around the country right now. Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: In 1918, you have to remember the the second wave, the most deadly wave of flu in 1918 happened between September to late December of 1918 uh, then there was another deadly wave uh, between January and April of 1919 but we were also sending off our boys and men to war this was the beginning of World War one for the United States It had been going on in Europe for, for some time and so you had lots of young men traveling cheek-by-jowl to various army camps to train, and not always under the most hygienic of conditions. And then they traveled cheek-by-jowl by by a train back to the East Coast to be in steamships to take them to the European theater. So the troop movement alone probably amplified the spread of influenza that year. Moreover, the way uh, America paid for its wars in the early 20th century was by selling liberty bonds, they were called war bonds in World War II as well. And these were like treasury bonds that Americans bought and got a certain amount of interest. Well, there were big parades in many American cities, Philadelphia, Detroit, Cincinnati, and on. It wasn't a protest per se, but lots of people were crowded on streets watching these parades. And of course, that was a risk factor as well.
0: What did we see in cities where these kinds of parades happened? I feel like the the example that people might have maybe heard of is what happened in Philadelphia, where there was a particularly large one of these rallies. So
1: what did what did we see there? It's become now a trope, almost a simplification. Philadelphia was the worst place. Actually, it was the second worst city. Pittsburgh was worse. But a lot of places had these big, crowded. Parades. Uh, Philadelphia was one of them. And certainly the parade helped amplify the number of cases. But there were many other factors to Philadelphia's failure to contain the uh, pandemic beyond just crowds. It wasn't just one plus one equals two. There was very bad public health management. They didn't close the schools. They didn't respond quickly. They were caught off guard because the East Coast cities got hit first, Boston, Philly, New York, and they weren't as well, they didn't have enough time to prepare compared to, say, the Midwestern cities or the Western cities. But that said, there was a huge parade, and there were a number of cases about seven days later, which is the incubation period for influenza. It's not a good idea to have large, crowded public gatherings in the time of an epidemic or a pandemic that's easily spread by respiratory droplets that said if you want to go you you, know, you fully are free to do so it's your right to do so uh, but you have to understand what the risks are
0: well and i'm wondering if we can talk a little bit too about the attitudes of people um in 1918 i mean was this a concern of people back 100 years ago or so? Were these same conversations that, that, that you and I are having now happening then?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yes, yeah, in mean, every city, people are telling people to stay at home or don't go to bars. They close down bars. They close down bowling alleys, ball-bill houses, uh, you know, even ball games. You have to also remember that public health is largely in the domain of the state or municipality. The thought was that Epidemics were a local phenomenon that happened because of the pollution or poor sanitation of a particular city. So each city had its own plan, its own commissioner. They all did roughly the same things, which we now call social distancing measures, quarantine and isolation, closing of the schools, and then finally public gathering bans. And so there were, you know, public health announcements and Newspaper accounts and all sorts of posters and what have you. And a lot of people in 1918 conflated acting in a socially mediated manner, you know, a public health minded manner with the war effort. So it was part of their patriotic duty to uh, prevent the spread of influenza. So there was a much more can-do, you know, public health effort back then. But you also have to remember, people 100 years ago were used to epidemics, and they did not—they knew that medicine did not have a lot to offer them. So, you know, one out of five babies in 1900 died before their first birthday because of an infectious disease. Uh, So everybody knew somebody who lost a kid or an adult to an infectious disease. And these were the only things they had available to them, these social distancing measures. There were no medicines. There were no vaccines that could help them.
0: How, a hundred years after the fact, do you connect these dots between these kinds of large events, if we want to think about, you know, this this large parade in in Philadelphia and, and a spike in cases? I mean... Can you say that there's causation there necessarily?
1: Well, you can't do a causal uh, experiment. So when we do uh, studies, epidemiological studies, using quantitative data of 1918, uh, we find a very strong association. But the fact that every city we studied, when the breaks were on, okay, when social distancing breaks were on, cases went down. If cities pulled the brakes off too early, the cases went right back up again, sometimes worse than before. And then if they pull the brakes again, the cases went down. So that follows that the social distancing measures were causal in terms of mitigating the number of cases and deaths. Because all you're doing is hiding. They don't cure people, they don't cancel out the virus. And so when we go out in public without masks or without taking uh, the right precautions, we are increasing our risk. It's as simple as that. And
0: I'm wondering, too, about other um, protests that we've seen even during this pandemic. I think of Lansing, uh, which saw hundreds of people protesting that state's shelter in place order. This was in mid-April. And actually checking the numbers uh, from the state of Michigan, um, it's not like that led to any real spike in cases. Is there a sense in which the conversation even that we're having now is maybe short-sighted, out of context, um, if, if if we've seen other protests in this pandemic that didn't lead to, to maybe spikes people are talking about now?
1: I don't think it's short-sighted because, first of all, most of us who practice medicine uh, practice with the Hippocratic dictum of first do no harm. And the other one is always better to be safe than sorry. You know, I've been a doctor for 30 years and I've never had a patient come back to me and say, hey, Dr. Martell, give me my money back. You told me it was better to be safe than sorry. <laughs> now, the protesters in Lansing, there were a couple hundred of them. Now, I, I would have loved to have gone and done an experiment of swabbing them all <laughs> before the protest and maybe two weeks later, but my um, <laughs> medical school <laughs> did not give me permission to do so, and rightly so. But there there were a couple of hundred of them, and it was a small group that got a lot of press. Here now we're talking about, you know, protests that have gone on for several days that have involved tear gas and corralling and jailing uh, of protesters in close proximity when they're in those vans that take people to jails and when they're in small holding cells So the risks seem greater. Again, I understand fully people's need to protest. The public health problem of young African-American men being killed, being murdered by police officers, is something I think we have to deal with as a real public health problem. We have to do a better job as a society, uh, as a nation, uh, as a community. Uh, to make sure that these needless murders don't happen.
0: Thinking as an historian of medicine and a physician, what do you make of of the fact that there are these social events that despite a pandemic, people feel passionately enough about to take part in?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a really uh, incredible uh, coincidence of events, isn't it? The people who are peacefully protesting are brave individuals who have clearly weighed the consequences of COVID versus voicing dissent for an untenable, horrible situation. And so I applaud their bravery, and it makes me feel proud to be an American. Uh, I don't want people to be silent about this. I just worry as a doctor, I mean, that's my job. <laughs> I've got to do that. I worry that it does, it will pose an extra risk. But I have to say, not as a physician, but just as an American whose family came here about a hundred years ago for a better life. I know how wonderful America is. And that is the best of America responding to the worst of America. Uh, so there's this epidemic or pandemic of racism that we must squash or prevent just as effectively as we're trying to squash the COVID pandemic.
0: Dr. Howard Markel, physician, medical educator, and historian of medicine at the University of Michigan, Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us with questions, comments, or controversy at washyourhands at WABE.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at WABE.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing.